And I will be in Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Ken, last week you preached No King but Christ from the Great Coronation, Psalm, Psalm 2. A great sermon and a great reminder of Christ's kingdom, uh, the fact that he has inherited all things and his incarnation has inherited all things and we are co-inheritors with him in the nations. They rage and they rage because Christ is taking over. Uh, He is taking over according to his own teaching when he came in the flesh, uh, in his incarnation before he really began his public ministry, the very first thing he taught was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. and John chapter 3, verse 17, he said he was coming not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So in his incarnation, taking the world over and renewing it rather than condemning it and destroying it like he did in the flood in the book of Genesis. That part of the story is already done. It no longer has to take place. And so Christ came to redeem, not to destroy. And in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, we see Jesus tell this parable of the mustard seed. It is planted in the garden and the kingdom of heaven is like this mustard seed planted in the garden and it grows and becomes the largest tree in the garden, the largest plant in the garden, and it overshadows all the other plants. Uh, We are going to be reading from Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27 this morning. Uh, Last week, Ken said, Christ is the only king. No king but Christ. Today we're going to see that there is really no kingdom but heaven. No kingdom but heaven. A reminder about the book of Revelation before we jump in. This is a book of imagery, a lot of imagery. It is apocalyptic literature. Uh, And lest we look at the book of Revelation and try to figure out some timing of events, we remember in chapter 1, verse 1, John said all of this that he's writing in the book of Revelation was soon to take place. He wrote the book 2,000 years ago soon to take place probably around his time and not ours and certainly not in our future right so that's chapter 1 verse 1 chapter 1 verse 9 in the book of revelation john claims to be a partaker in the tribulation he's describing in the book of revelation and a partaker in the kingdom of heaven as he describes it in the book of revelation in chapter 22 verse 20 he reminds us again that jesus christ is coming quickly. In fact, he asks Jesus, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so we read the book of Revelation, not like most people do today, trying to figure out some future sign or event that will take place, uh, that will signify the establishment of the kingdom. Instead, we read the book of Revelation knowing that the kingdom of heaven is already established and is growing on this earth. Uh, We read it like partial preterists rather than futurists. Uh, We can read it like idealists um, rather than futurists or historicists. Um, So as we consider those things, we jump into Revelation chapter 21. And I want to, uh, Ken talked about the coming of Christ last week, the fact that Christ is taking over the world. I, I want to see the way that the New Testament authors described 
the church. The way that the church is to be in light of Christ's incarnation, in light of the Advent season, in light of Christmas, um, what, what is this, this thing called the church in comparison to Christ and Christ's current work as King and as Lord? Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came, the last plagues that were soon to take place, right? The last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb and the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall and the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width and he measured the city with the rod 1500 miles its length and width and height are equal, and he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were all adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime. For there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now this is no description of a literalistic city. We see that as early as verse 9. Uh, everybody always wonders what it will be like when we get to heaven to walk on those streets of gold. I tell you, the streets of gold are in our hearts. 
not in a literalistic city. Because in verse 9, John identifies this city, New Jerusalem, not as the capital city of heaven, not as some literalistic city descending down to the earth at some future time, but as the bride of Christ. Well, Christ is not married to bricks and to stone and to gold roads, is he? That would be silly. In verse 9, we read, The one, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This is the way Christ thinks of us. Not as something that is not precious, not as a, an expendable community. When Christ thinks of us, he, he thinks of us like his bride. He treasures us. The wife of the lamb, the church. And so whatever we are reading in this passage about the new Jerusalem, about this city that, from John's perspective, is descending from heaven, we read this in terms of the church of Jesus Christ, his bride. We tend to think of the church of Jesus Christ organizationally in terms of buildings and budgets and numbers of people gathered together. The Church of Jesus Christ is much more than those things. It is His bride. The Church is the wife of the Lamb. The Church is the new Jerusalem. Verse 10, And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high Mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, the church, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. So the church is not a city. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is also not inglorious. We have a tendency as the church, or some local churches have the tendency to look at other local churches and treat them as somehow inglorious. To, to withhold ourselves from glory like it's some form of, of piousness. Not to recognize that we bear the very glory of Christ. As, as we gather and as we live in our communities and as we work our jobs, we, we, the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, we bear the very glory of God, having the glory of God on this earth. And this is why I think when, when John sees, he, he looks around and he sees the church, he he sees the glory of God and he sees the kingdom of heaven descending. This is why I think we pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And I want to recognize with John that the kingdom of heaven is still descending on this earth. It is still growing from that mustard seed and it is, it is overshadowing the kingdoms, the nations of the earth. And we bear witness to God and we bear the very glory of God in our gathering and as we are the church on this earth. We are the kingdom continuing to come, continuing to be established, continuing to grow. And one day, one day that will culminate in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Having the glory of God, her, oh, he calls the city her because it's the bride of Christ, not a literalistic city, right? Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now I am completely aware that we are wretched sinners. (laughs) I am more aware now of the depth of my own sin and depravity and wretchedness than I ever have been in my life. And I continue to grow more aware of that depravity and wretchedness the longer that I live and the longer I I walk with Christ. But I also recognize this. When Christ sees me because of his blood, because of his sacrifice on Calvary, because of his work to renew the world rather than condemn it or destroy it, When he looks at me, he he doesn't see the blackness of sin. He doesn't see the mud. He sees brilliance, like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. That's encouraging to me. Christ himself doesn't point out the darkness of my heart. at least in terms of salvation, maybe only for the purpose of sanctification. He doesn't point out everything that I do every single day with a selfish heart, with selfish intent. He sees brilliance like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear Jasper. That's how he sees his church, his bride, his wife, New Jerusalem. A New Jerusalem, the, the church of Jesus Christ, had a, a great and high wall. Now, this isn't a city. Remember, this isn't about geography. This is about the people of God. And so something about us, about his church, about the people, the, this wall represents something about us. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. So this isn't really about the wall itself. It's about the gates on the wall and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, to, to be a part of the city, to be a part of the kingdom, well, you, you enter the gates, right? To get into the city, you enter the gates. And so this imagery, John is using this on purpose. The gates, either the gates or the angels, have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. 
signifying the fact that in order to come into the kingdom, we must enter through national Israel. It is Israel's place. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean we have to become Jews in order to become Christians? Well, no, that question was settled in Acts chapter 15, right? So that is not what John is getting at here, lest he contradict another of the apostles. No, but Jesus came from the Jews. Jesus is true Israel. He is the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah prophesied by the Old Testament. The Messiah coronated with Psalm chapter 2, as we saw last week. No king but Christ. And his kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. So we see that there is no real kingdom but the kingdom of heaven. And the only way to enter into this kingdom is through national Israel, believing in true Israel. And we also get the entire Old Testament from the nation of Israel. And it is the Old Testament that tells us of Jesus, tells us of the Messiah, prophesies about the Messiah, shows us that we are incapable of, of achieving ourselves the glory of God, that it must be imputed to us. The Old Testament is what shows us that without the Old Testament, there is no, there is no guilt. Without the Old Testament, we are unaware of our sin, though it still is there. We are unaware of our depravity and our wretchedness because it's it's there in the Old Testament. We are unaware of our need for a Savior, a Savior who would be born an Israelite in the line of David and who would ascend to David's throne. And so we enter the kingdom of heaven through national Israel. Looking to the Old Testament texts and seeing the Savior that the Old Testament promises And there were three gates on each side, the north and the south and the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, here referring to the 12 Jewish apostles, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So on the gates you have the 12 tribes of Israel, you enter through those, but then the foundations, the foundation stones, Jesus' name isn't written on all of the foundation stones. Like in some way, this, this, the church of Jesus Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles. Well, how so? The apostles gave us what? The New Testament. So here, John is he's like, in modern day terms, we would say sola scriptura. Yeah? The Old and New Testament, this, this collection of 66 books, these are the things that are entirely sufficient for knowledge pertaining to life and ministry and salvation. That's it. That's what is sufficient. So the 12 gates, the 12 tribes of Israel, 
And the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles' apostolic teaching. And they exposited the Old Testament, explained the Old Testament in light of Christ. It's what we see here in the New Testament. It's what we're reading here in the book of Revelation. This is why every Sunday we come to church and hear preaching that is expository, not exceeding what is written here in the text. It's why we have set this standard at Douglas Reformed Church. Because this is the faith. This is the church. And those who try to import worldly philosophies or try to reinterpret the text of Scripture in light of worldly philosophies or man-made religion, they are outside the city gates. They are not New Jerusalem. They are not standing upon the foundation of the apostles' teaching. That was Matthew chapter 11, right? Somewhere around there. Peter's great confession. You are the Christ. Jesus' reply is astounding. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter. The Spirit did. God revealed this to you. The Father did. And I tell you, Peter, rock. I will build my church upon you. Peter. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. The church is built upon the apostles. And that's nothing weird to say. We're teaching John's words right now and he was one of the apostles. We're learning from him about the kingdom of heaven. Verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod. Just the majesty of this imagery. Are you sensing this majesty? The brilliant colors, the the precious stones, the golden rods. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city was laid out as a square. No, that doesn't mean the church is a square. Okay? Either like a geometric square, perfectly, I'm kind of round. <laughs> or like a loser kind of square. That's not what this text is getting at, okay? We can't, we can't read that into this text. It's not what it means. It's laid out as a square. This is imagery. And its length is as great as the width and he measured the city with a rod. Well, to get a square number, what do you do? You measure length and width and height, right? Length and width. The city being laid out as a square, we get length, width, height, number three. That's apocalyptic imagery. John does this throughout the book of Revelation, uses apocalyptic imagery to to communicate a a reality about the kingdom of heaven, about the work of Jesus Christ, about the fate of the world. He uses apocalyptic imagery because in his day, the Romans are looking out for Christian literature and they're keeping it from the churches and they're persecuting people because of what they are reading. Epistle wouldn't have gotten very far without being somehow encrypted. And so John encrypted his letter with apocalyptic imagery. 
The three is the divine number, number of importance. What he's about to say is a, is a matter of divinity, holiness. He measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height, there we see the three again, are equal. 1,500 miles. That sure seems like he's measuring physical distance, doesn't it? I hear, brothers and sisters, we lose something in translation when the text is translated into English. John did not use the number 1,500, and he certainly wasn't seeing things measured in miles, okay? In the Greek, we read that this city was measured to be 12,000 stadia. That's about 1,500 miles if you're measuring physical distance, but John is using apocalyptic imagery here. 12,000, if we're to break that down, 1,000 is an apocalyptic number, meaning this is way more than a sufficient number of things and stuff. That's, those are technical terms. Way more than sufficient. This is a lot. And it's a, a gratuitous number. Like God didn't have to take things this far, but he did. This is way more. And then the number 12, well, that sounds familiar, like we've already already read that in the text, the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. This is a number that simply stands for the people of God. And so this city is so populous. Some of the people are the city, right? The city is so populous that the number of people, it can't be counted with, with the human brain, at least not in any meaningful way. It would take so long to do it that you'd have to, I mean, you eventually start over and not know you started over, Right? I seem to remember some kind of promise to Abraham in the Old Testament that his descendants would be what? As, as numerous as the stars in the sky? If anyone could count the number of grains of sand on the beach, they would be able to count your descendants, Abraham. That's the imagery we're getting here. Like, this is not a small kingdom. You seem to, to get the sense today, and we're a small church, small congregation. There are many small congregations around. The kingdom of heaven is no small kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is populous, beyond counting. It's easy to look at the world today and get pessimistic about the state of things, especially when it seems to some that the church is, is dying. The church is not dying. Not if we believe the promises in Scripture. We experience seasons and ebbs and flows in certain geographical areas of the, of the earth. But the church is alive and well and populous. This is the kingdom of God that is overtaking the planet. It is not shrinking. It is growing. It has never been shrinking from the moment God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, he has been working toward building his kingdom, and he established it at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we remember during Advent. If, if that's not what we're remembering during Advent, why, why commemorate this season at all? Why celebrate 
Christmas if Jesus didn't succeed in what he promised to do. Come, bring the kingdom, establish it, and renew the whole earth. So this kingdom is populous. God has many people. God has many people on the earth. God has many people in the United States of America. God has many people in the state of Arizona. God has many people, saints, chosen in Cochise County. God has many people chosen in Douglas, Arizona. It is our job to call his people together. To declare the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And to see the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit's work. If we are in Christ, and if we are sincere in doing church and being the church, and if we are the hands and feet of Christ on this earth, we will not fail no matter the size of our congregation. And that is true for any church. We do not have to despair because what we do doesn't seem to be working. Christ is king, not us. And he is building his church. And we will see the fruit of that sooner or later because he won at the cross, has already defeated evil, has already defeated sin, and he is bringing the whole world under his domain as we speak. Verse 17, and he, this angel, the one with John, he measured its wall, 72 yards. Again, we lose something in translation. John did not use the number 72, nor did he use the measurement yards. He measured in cubits. And this is 144 cubits. What he sees, the new Jerusalem is being. 144 is 12 times 12. This is a number that means the twofold church of Christ. The completed, complete church of Jesus Christ, consisting of both Jew and Gentile together. People want to separate it all out. No, Christ has one kingdom, God has one kingdom, one people. That does not eliminate national Israel as the national people of God. It, it does not replace national Israel as the national people of God. But there is one eschatological kingdom, one spiritual kingdom consisting of both Jew and Gentile. There is no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile in Christ. I believe Paul wrote that in at least two places. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits, the completed, complete people of God, Jew and Gentile, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Now that is a weird detail to include. As far as I know, angels pre-existed humanity. I don't know that for sure, but I'm pretty sure. As far as I know, angels don't really need human measurements. Seems kind of weird. What I think Paul is saying here is the human measurements I'm giving you 
are also angelic measurements to mean this is this is figurative figurative measurements I'm using here, figurative language I'm using here. I think he's cluing us into that again. That's why we don't read Revelation literalistically, because if we do, then we think the angels need our tools to operate, and that just seems silly. Christ doesn't need our tools. The angels don't need our tools. According to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements, this is figurative. I think if John is actually telling us this is figurative language, then we want to understand what he literally means, which means we can't read it literalistically because he's telling us, guys, this is figurative. He's, like he's spelling it out for us. Read this like it's encrypted. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. But gold isn't clear like glass. Interesting. Figurative language. <laughs> okay. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every, every kind of precious stone. And the first, and if you want, just close your eyes as I read this and try to picture this if you know what these stones look like. There are a couple stones here I don't even think we have on earth, but whatever. Um, just try to picture this, like, like what, what this would look like if a wall were really composed of these things, a foundation stone is really composed of this, of these precious stones. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Not 12 pearls each, 12 pearls total. That's a big pearl. Each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, like the majesty. John, the elder here, sees when he's considering the church, when he's being shown this image that represents the church by this angel and the way Christ sees the church. Again, I just want to reiterate, the church of Jesus Christ is not inglorious. This is a glorious thing we are doing. It's a glorious thing we are. And it's not a glory that is of us. By any stretch of the imagination, it is a glory and a majesty that is Christ's glory and majesty imputed to his church. We don't pretend to be anything less than that, but we also don't present ourselves as anything more than we are. That's why we don't pretend to have a righteousness or a glory or a majesty that is of ourselves. But the church of Jesus Christ is the kingdom of Christ coming to this earth. How can that not be glorious? How can that not be filled with majesty? More beautiful than the sunsets we see every evening or the sunrises that come up in the morning. More beautiful than the arm of the Milky Way stretching across the sky. More beautiful than the mountains we get to witness with our own eyes. There is a majesty 
upon the church that is greater than any physical thing we can see or touch or hear, better, better than the greatest symphony, greater than the most artistic poem, more beautiful than any form of music. This is the church of Jesus Christ, and we have forgotten how beautiful the church is. How wonderful the church is. In our society today, and I fear that the church is known for this, and I, I fear that this is why people are so slow to plug into a local church, even if they want to love Christ and want to believe Christ. They see this community that is to be the hands and feet of Christ, that is to be filled with all glory and majesty and joy and thanksgiving, this community that is to be renewing the world like Christ promised to renew the world, and, and all they feel is condemnation and complaining and condescension like the church doesn't care about renewing the world the church just prays and prays and prays that Christ comes quickly and deals his judgment and destroys the earth but that they're saved from it in some kind of secret rapture what a what a sad theology. And what a sad way to, to try to be the hands and feet of Christ. You cannot be the hands and feet. You cannot be Christ on earth if, if you are not renewing the world like he is renewing the world. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it. Oh, I love this part. Jesus seemed to teach something like this, right? We saw, saw a half-Jew, a half-breed at a well. And she's like, you Jews, you think you're all that, you know everything. You say you worship on that mountain, but, but we worship on the historic mountain. We worship on the real mountain. And Jesus, tr truly I say to you, verily, verily, he's the King James, right? I say unto you, there's coming a day when you will neither worship on that mountain or this, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. There, Jesus saying, there's coming a day when the temple's going to be no more and it's not going to matter. Like, Jesus actually taught that. There will be no more temple, period. It is not my plan to have a temple there forever. That is not what God wants. The, the temple... Served its purpose, but, but Jesus didn't stop there. He, he actually told her, hey, the time's now. Here I am, right? The kingdom is at hand. This is what Jesus taught. So John follows that up. I see no temple. <laughs> For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Oh. And the city has no need of the sun or moon. He, he's not saying literalistically that the sun and the moon are just gone all of a sudden, right? There are people who believe, because they read the book of Revelation literalistically, that the sun and the moon are actually going to be no more. Uh, I believe that God created the sun and moon and stepped back and said, this is good. Why would, why would God change his design? Why would God change his mind about what is good? in the resurrection, 
that's not what John says here. He says, the city has no need of the sun or the moon. And remember, this is apocalyptic language, so the city is us. We have no need of the sun or the moon to light our path. Why? To shine on it. Why? For the glory of God has illuminated it. Yeah. Welling up from within the hearts of those in the church is the very glory of God lighting their way, illuminating their steps in life forevermore. And God is preparing their steps ahead of them. He is walking with them. He is the light within them, guiding them, protecting them, guarding them from sin, from darkness, from rebelling against him, keeping them faithful. God is the one who does that. He is the light. He is the temple redeeming his people buying them from the darkness. That's what redemption is. Buying them from the darkness, renewing them, giving them life that wasn't present before, giving them joy that wasn't present before, giving them happiness. God wants this for his people. That doesn't mean we always experience it in an imperfect world. Remember, the kingdom of Christ is not culminated yet. and Christ has not returned yet. So we still do experience anxiety, depression, sadness, anger, but less and less as Christ takes over. And I believe that. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Woe. The lamp is the Lamb. Forevermore. The Lamb, who is Jesus Christ throughout the book of Revelation. John uses this imagery, the Lamb, the Lamb. The Lamb is Christ, Jesus. And if the Lamb is the Lamp, that means it's always, forever, going to be Christ, just as it is now, going to be Christ, who is the revelation, the fullness of the revelation of God the Father. The glory of God illuminates the city, the church, and the Lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. Now here's the problem when you read this like it is an entirely future depiction of a literalistic city. Because if God has destroyed the nations, how can the nations walk by the light of the city? They, they can't. If this is after some Literalistic future seven-year tribulation and the saints are raptured out and at the end of the tribulation God rains down his wrath and wipes out all the earth and then puts his kingdom people back on it however that works out, right? There are no other nations. But here John is saying the nations walk by the light of the city. But this looks more like Christ's parable in Matthew 13 than it does a dispensational view of eschatology where Christ said, Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that overtakes the garden and overshadows the other plants. It is bigger than the other plants and it overshadows them. It's like the leaven there in Matthew 13 as well. The kingdom of heaven is like, like leaven. Once it's in the lump of dough and it's needed, it, it's, it, it grows throughout the lump of dough. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is how it's working. And the nations walk by its light. 
Christ isn't interested in just smiting every single nation all of a sudden. He'll do that sometimes. But his design is that his kingdom so overtake the world, starting at his incarnation and moving forward, his advent, remember? That the nations walk by the light of his people. Which means we have something to say when it comes to politics. We have something to say when it when it comes to the moral agendas of the world, the moral conversation, when it comes to ethics, we have something to say, to speak into the world. And we want to speak life and not death. So many people, when they talk about, about, about law and bills and voting and governments and politics, are speaking death. But we are to go in and speak the gospel in the honor of Christ. In our workplaces and in our homes and when we celebrate the holidays even preaching from a pulpit this isn't to stay within the walls of the church why it is christ's design that the nations walk by the light of his word which is proclaimed by his church the new jerusalem the kingdom so the nations walk by its light and the kings of earth will this is a promise will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem, this city, which means as we proclaim the light of Christ in the world, not of condemnation, not merely of complaining, not condescending toward people, but condescending to them, right? As we do this, the light of Christ goes out and the king, not just Joe Schmo, you know, according to the world's perspective, but the king's will subject themselves to the light of Christ and bring the glory of the nations into new Jerusalem. Now, here's what I love about that. Because the world has tried to win a lot of glory for itself through the obtaining of land, different nations. You, know, you achieve glory by winning wars and taking land by colonizing, by developing technologies, by winning the great space race. Being the first nations to develop nuclear weapons or nuclear capabilities. And there are some glorious things that have been done glorious things that have been misused by the nations of the world to kill and to murder and to commit genocide but glorious things nonetheless the same nuclear power used to develop a bomb is used to develop reactors that can power whole cities and the same internet that that forces men into lust makes vast communication possible, connecting with old friends and developing social networks. The same technology that's being used to record this sermon can be used for evil or good. These are glorious things. God has 
given architects some amazing ability to design houses and churches and businesses. There is some beautiful architecture in this world. And we, we have hobbies. And we have materials available to us for those hobbies. And we have work to do with our hands. There's so much development that has gone on since the creation of the world. The human race has truly cultivated the earth. Even now, we're, where we're bringing extinct species back from the dead. And Scripture doesn't just flat out call all that evil. People do evil things with the capability God has given, no doubt. But here John recognizes that the kings of the world will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem in the daytime for there will be no night. Notice he's been talking in present tense up to this point and then all of a sudden he's like, there will be no night. That part's still future, but the rest of this, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. We will lose nothing. Nothing. Said, but you can't take it with you when you die true. Like personally, you can't take anything with you. But we, when we inherit the earth with Christ as co-heirs, we inherit the whole earth and all the developments of the earth and the cultivation up to this point, only missing one thing. The corruption of sin and human wickedness. What a wonderful life we have to look forward to with all the technologies and all the opportunities and the wonderful labor we get to partake in on this earth only without sin. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. No sin allowed. Now that doesn't mean you have to not sin in order to get in, but that means when you're part of the kingdom, the Holy Spirit comes in and He deals with that. It's a ma manner of conviction. Through, through a matter of conscience and spirit, He deals with that in us. If we don't war against our sin, chances are we're not in Christ. If we're trying to battle our sin before coming to Christ, we will fail. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life is that book that before the foundation of the world, Christ had written the names of all of his people. So it's not a matter of works, not a matter of getting rid of your sin first, but if our name is in the Lamb's book of life, Christ will deal with our sin just as he dealt with it. He'll deal with our sin in our, in our hearts just as he dealt with it on, on the cross. And so, our application today, no kingdom but heaven. Recognizing the fact that biblically speaking, all the nations of the world are coming under Christ's immediate authority and dominion. 
and that he owns the nations of the world and is renewing them through his church. And that is why we are here. The application we give is, let's go out and renew the earth. Let's see the redeemed of the Lord come in. Use our gifts and abilities to to take this message out of these walls. To see Douglas, Arizona reclaimed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a, a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ going out into Douglas, Arizona and Cochise County, we start to see beautification. Like this works out. We start to see beautification projects and we start to see new technologies developed and we, we start to see people get passionate again about what they do and we start to see men really sacrificially loving their wives and we begin to see wives submitting in a biblical way to, the, to their godly husbands who are laying their lives on the line on their line for them and we start to see men loving their children, pouring into their children instead of exasperating their children to anger and women being good, being, being great moms Again, instead of, instead of people who just set their kids in front of the television because they don't really want to put time into raising their, their children because they got other stuff to do, right? This works out in reality. We want good relationships and we want good jobs and workplaces and homes that we are happy with and we want to build, build good clientele and customer and customer bases and we want to have good governments and we want the we want the nations to stop raging this is how it happens the kingdom of god coming and us proclaiming the gospel of jesus christ and to those in our city douglas arizona who listened to this sermon all the way through or just skip to the end to see how it ends i don't know we make this invitation Come and see. Come and see the goodness of God. Come and see that he is making all things new. And come and see that he has made us new, that he will make you new too. And he will renew your relationships and he will renew your passions and and he will renew all things because that is what Christ came to do in his incarnation in the original Advent season, the first Christmas. Amen. Amen. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.